Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, episode 51 for May 27, 2007. I'm your host, Tom Olzak. You can find the information covered in our episodes at adventuresinsecurity.com on the podcast page. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like me to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. In this episode, I continue the computer forensic series with two featured topics, cracking a password-protected BIOS and finding hidden data. The featured material is taken from my weekly contributions to techrepublic.com, a source of valuable information for all technology professionals. And now let's take a look at current events in the world of information security. Security breach of a Sarasota County, Florida election system underscores the point about which I repeatedly write, the general insecurity of government networks is a growing public risk. The sad thing is that simply following security best practices would have probably prevented this incident. Even sadder is that the list of recommended remediation steps appears to be reactionary rather than a proactive approach to preventing future attacks. According to the completed incident report, a variant of the slammer worm caused a two-hour outage of the county voter verification internet service. The attack, which began at 2.46 p.m. on October 23, 2006, was successful because the infected server was five years behind on patches. Yes, I said five years behind. For example, the specific patch that would have prevented this attack was Microsoft Patch MS-02-039, which was released in 2002. But how did the worm get into the network in the first place? Well, a known problem with the firewall used by the county allowed UDP packets that wouldn't normally reach the unpatched server to pass unimpeded when the firewall failed. So in addition to immediate remediation steps, what recommendations were made to ensure this type of incident doesn't occur? Well, implement the first one was to implement additional smart defense rules for massive UDP traffic to help detect and, detect and stop this type of traffic before it brings down the firewall. This appears to be moving in the right direction, but shouldn't the network team have known about this weakness before the incident? What steps were taken to shore up this vulnerability? What processes were in place to identify announced vulnerabilities in LAN-WAN devices? The second step, or second recommendation, is to locate servers where the OS and application updates are out of date and update as necessary. Again, a valid step. However, was there a failure of a patch management process in the first place, or does the process even exist? Reacting to an incident by updating patches might be the right path for previously unknown vulnerabilities. This is definitely not the case here. What proactive steps will the county take to ensure critical security patches are quickly applied in the future? And the third recommendation was to add SQL and Oracle versions to the lists of apps to scan for, scan for during biweekly server scans. Okay, this isn't a bad list, but it doesn't go far enough. Further, what happened to antivirus software? No mention of it is made in the incident report. Wouldn't a recommendation about not placing servers on the network without up-to-date anti-malware support be in order? There is also a statement in the incident that reads, The server was never intended to be accessible from the public Internet. So, what difference does it make if a server was intended to be accessible from the Internet? Sarasota County apparently hasn't heard about layered security controls. This is a prime example of relying on one layer, the firewall, 
without implementing additional controls in the event that the firewall fails or is cracked. In my opinion, this is one more example of why government entities at any level should not be allowed to manage centralized databases containing critical information. Even in an environment in which government information leaks are the flavor of the day, we are asked to put additional trust in the ability of our public officials to protect our identities as well as elements of national defense. I have one thing to say. Nuts. The next story comes from the world of fishing prevention. Fishing is big business, and it's getting bigger every day. No matter how many times we tell our users to check before they click, they continue to travel to phishing sites courtesy of malicious emails. There's a link in the show notes to an article entitled, Hundreds Click on Click Here to Get Infected Ad, and it's a great read for proof that many users will click on just about anything. Now there's a solution that will help the slightly more conscientious users to make a quick decision about the authenticity of a link. Bluefur, a Canadian web services provider, has released a free product that automatically displays the URL associated with links in HTML documents. The product, called FishFinder, is a plug-in for Outlook 2000, 2003, and 2007. Although not a panacea for careless clicking, FishFinder clearly displays the potential destination resulting from following a displayed hyperlink. Fortunately, an increasing number of users are smart enough to know that a PayPal link shouldn't start with fisherman.com. Let's hope the rest catch up soon. And the final current event item isn't really news, but it's something I wanted to share with you. In my meanderings around the internet, I stumbled upon this little gem. It's a well-organized information security assessment checklist. It covers every aspect of an information system solution assessment, including management responsibilities, organization, personnel, both employees and other information classification, software, hardware, and about nine other categories. A checklist is a vital tool in assessing the security of information resources. It helps a security analyst consider all relevant vulnerabilities and controls. If your organization doesn't have one, this is a good place to start. You can get to the link for this checklist and the Interpol site, which has a lot of good information on it, by, tr- by clicking on the link to the Interpol checklist in the show notes. Well, that's it for the current events. So let's get on to the featured topics. The first one is cracking a protected BIOS and creating disks for analysis. In the previous installment of the series, we gathered information about the target system in a forensics investigation by reviewing its BIOS setup. However, a suspect's BIOS might be password protected. In this episode, we'll look at how to get into a password protected BIOS. We'll also move to the next step in the electronic forensics process preparing the forensics drives for analysis. Obviously, the best way to get the BIOS password is to ask the suspect. The problem is that he or she might not be too willing to help the investigator gather evidence. Other options for retrieving the password include BIOS password crackers. As long as the investigator can run an operating system on the target machine, software such as Password Reminder can be used to retrieve the password. Systems protected by biometrics might resist this technique. Another way is the use of backdoor passwords. Many BIOS manufacturers include backdoor BIOS passwords. Although bad news for users or organizations relying on BIOS security to protect endpoint devices, this is good news for investigators. TechFAC 
is a good website for this information. Another way is contacting the manufacturer. In some cases, BIOS manufacturers can be a good source for information on how to reset or bypass the password. The investigator should be prepared to provide verification of his or her identity. And finally, you can follow manufacturer instructions for using jumpers to reset the BIOS. This approach has its own challenges. Using reset jumpers might change information the investigator needs for his investigation. Once again, TechFact is a good place to start if going down this path, but it should be the recovery method of last resort. Once the target system setup information is retrieved, it's time to begin analyzing data on its internal hard drives. The most important rule to remember is to not conduct forensics analysis on the original media. A true copy of the data on the target system's drives must be made for analysis purposes. This helps the investigator demonstrate that no actions were taken that might have inadvertently altered the original state of the media evidence in the event the defense is allowed to conduct its own analysis. The following steps must be taken to create forensics copies. First, prepare the drives to which the data will be copied. The investigator must be able to demonstrate that no remnant data remained on the forensics drives prior to copying data to them. One of the best ways to accomplish this is by overriding the data with patterns of bits. A good disk sanitation tool is KillDisk. KillDisk supports the Department of Defense standard and Peter Gutmann's recommended approach to dealing with data remnants. Set number two, write protect the original disk. Before connecting the original disk to a live forensic system, the investigator must take steps to prevent it from being written to, and write blockers are a good solution. They ensure data is not written to the drive, and they are easily documented as the method used. The third step, execute a bit-level copy from the original disk to a prepared forensics drive. A standard copy of files from one drive to another will not pull information in hidden areas of the disk, and we're going to look at these challenges in the next segment of this episode. Only a bit-level copy, such as those created by forensics applications, for example, NCASE or Helix, or utilities such as DD, is suitable for analysis. Regardless of the utility used, the investigator must ensure that hash values for the contents of the original drive and for the copy are generated. If the hash values match, the copy is an exact replica. The hash values and the process used to make the copy should be clearly documented. Once the copy is created, the original drive should be secured. There shouldn't be any reason to access it in further stages of the analysis process. And the final step, create a working copy. The forensics copy is a master replica. It should not be used for analysis. Rather, the investigator should create a working copy. The process to create a working copy should be the same as that followed when creating the forensics copy. The forensics copy is kept in reserve in case additional working copies are needed. And now our final segment, finding hidden data on a forensics copy, or working copy. Fortunately for the forensics investigator, most users aren't very good at covering their tracks. Ignorance of how computers manage memory and disks results in incriminating file or memory content stored in various locations invisible to the subject of an investigation. In this episode, we'll look at three potential locations for this information. Deleted files in Slack space, swap files, or swap space, and hibernation files. When an operating system writes a file to disk, 
it allocates a certain number of sectors. The number of sectors allocated depends on the limitations of the operating system and configuration decisions made by the system administrator. The sectors allocated and their location on the disk are recorded in a directory table for later access. When the file is deleted, the space originally allocated to it is simply marked as unallocated. The actual data remains on the disk. Deleted files in this state are easily recoverable by many disk utilities. But what happens if a new file is written to this same space? There's an example in the show notes that I'm going to step through at this point that shows two sectors in various stages. In the first state, file A was written to both sectors. These select sectors were completely filled by the file's content. When the user decides to delete the file, the sectors are marked as unallocated. However, the file content remains. And that is state 2. In state 3, the user requests the OS to save file B. The OS once again allocates sectors 1 and 2, but the file content doesn't completely fill sector 2. The unwritten portion of sector 2 is known as slack space, and it still contains content from file A. Slack space data can be read and analyzed by any of the popular forensics toolkits. The next area for, to look, for, for hidden, look into for hidden data is swap space. Both Linux and Microsoft Windows systems expand RAM by using disk. In this virtual memory model, the OS moves data and memory to a special location on disk in order to free RAM for additional operations. When the data on disk is needed again, it's moved back into RAM. The area on disk used for this purpose is called the swap file or swap space. In Linux environments, the swap area is an actual disk partition. On a Windows XP machine, the swap space is a file called pagefile.sys. Since everything in RAM is subject to being swapped to disk, some very interesting information can be found in a swap file. In addition to plain text data that might be encrypted in a disk file, encryption keys might also be present. This is due to weaknesses in some applications that allow unencrypted keys to reside in memory. Further, Information contained in emails or stored at remote locations might still reside in swap space. Any standard disk maintenance utility can access this information. And finally, there's the hibernation files. Hibernation files are created when a system goes into sleep or hibernation mode. For example, a laptop running Windows XP writes the entire contents of RAM to a file when going into hibernation. Like swap space, Hibernation files can contain a wealth of information not found anywhere else on the target system. The contents of a hibernation file can be accessed by a number of disk maintenance utilities. A target disk is usually full of useful information. An investigator just needs to know where to look and how to employ the proper tools and techniques for extracting it. Well, that's it for this week. I hope I was able to help you make your network just a little bit safer. And until next time... Be careful what you click.